0: To be here tonight, and I'm just so thankful for God's rich blessings. This afternoon, uh, the bunch brothers. Tom has a brother, Fred. Uh, I I told Fred I would let him know that I recognize him, but they—they were so kind, their families, to show us around a little bit. We have just been so blessed. You know, there's people here that I met this week that I feel like I've known all my life. You ever been around folks like that? This camp meeting has just really been a blessing. Jane, would you come up and join me for a second? I'm gonna put you on the spot. Come up, if you would, for just a minute. Now, this is not rehearsed. rehearsed. She knows nothing about this. (laughs) But uh, first night, we found out that Jenny and I have something in common. Yes, we do. What is that? It's our academy. Mount Vernon Academy. Mount Vernon Academy. In Ohio. Now, hang on, hang on. I thought this was a camp meeting. I didn't know it was alumni weekend. going. It's alumni weekend for Mount Vernon to Can I have anybody that's been, that graduated from Mount Vernon, if you would please stand. Come on now. Come on now. Look at it. Now, now, hang on, hang on, hang on. Is this everybody? I think we're missing somebody. I don't know if he's here yet. He's not here yet. Well, tell us, tell me. Now, who's this back here now? Janice Stewart. Janice Stewart. Glad you're here. What here? Fifty, man, and over here, these folks, what, what year? Fifty-four. Fifty-four. My now you know this guy. Yes, I do. <laughs> did you all go to school together? We did. You did, Larry. Same class. Same class. Can you believe it? And part of the Wedgewood Trio. That's right. Bob Summerer. Bob Summerer. Also from the same class. Isn't that amazing? Way up here, she said, in the middle of nowhere. Right. And on our planning committee, we have a, a couple who weren't here this year. Uh, the uh, Robs, Yvonne and Dick, some of you know them. Both graduates, they're like from about, she, I think they're 50-year grad. Went back to their 50-year reunion. Isn't that something? Uh, and they met. They both were widowed. They met at a reunion, and that's where they married. Isn't that something? I tell you, isn't it wonderful to be part of the family of God? It really is. Probably... <sighs> <laughs> Excuse this fellow larry carter i think i've probably known 40 years huh it's been a few years and his wife gloria it's just wonderful to see what god can do amen larry didn't he say that if people didn't speak up the, the rocks would cry out yeah we're a couple of those old rocks aren't we buddy yes sir yes sir Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. We, we worked and had a business together long before we were ever Christians. That's all that's ever going to be said about that. Is that right, Larry? All right. It's dead. It's dead. (laughs) You live here. That's right. It's gone. So, but I, it's just so exciting, isn't it? To be, to not just to be uh, brothers, but brothers in the Lord, huh? And I'm so thankful for that. It is a privilege to be here this evening. Some of you are joining us for the first time. And I just want to share with you what our theme has been and how it's come about. I teach at Southwestern Adventist University. have been there about 22 years now. And in 1991, we tore down the oldest building on our campus. And in the front column of that old building, there was a time capsule placed there by a gentleman in our community who still lived in the community in 1991. He's the one that took a sledgehammer and knocked that column down and his hands that put that time capsule there brought it out in 1991. He placed it there in 1939. And in that time capsule, there was a, uh, an annual and some other material. But this letter was there. And this is what we've been looking at this week. This is what this letter says. It was written by H.H. H. Hamilton, who was the president at that time of Southwestern Junior College. It was written to the president who would open that uh, box. And it says this, We hope it will never be necessary for anyone to tear down this building and to find this box. We believe that the coming of the Lord will make it unnecessary to ever rebuild on this spot again. But then it says this, We who are here at this time firmly believe in the third angel's message. And we look forward to this event with joy in our hearts. You see, these early pioneers on our campus were Adventists. And my question I've had all week for you, are there any Adventists here today? And it's not simply because we've come into a place that had a sign out here. But Adventists are people who look at the world differently than anybody else. They look at the world through the lenses of the second coming of Jesus. Is that correct? And that's what we've been doing this week We're looking in another time capsule, probably the first book written in the New Testament, the book of 1 Thessalonians. It was written before the Gospels. And this book we've been opening up, and every night we've been pulling out, if you would, another object lesson from this book, from this time capsule. We want to see if there's some things about this first century Adventist church that is in the 21st century church right before Jesus comes. And so we need to do just a quick review for those that are here for the first time. First night, what did we pull out of that capsule? A boot. Yes. Because Paul said that this letter was written to those who are in Thessalonica and those who are in Christ. And every Christian in every church has a well-worn path between the mountain and the multitude. In Christ is our source of strength and hope and identity and grace and purpose. But we don't live on the mountain. We live in a community with a name. And that's where we live for Jesus, right? We read that from Desire of Ages. If you cease to come to that community, you will cease praying. Did you read that? Page 101, Desire of Ages? To be able to have a vibrant prayer life, we need to constantly walk that path from the mountain to the multitude. That's why the boot was there. And then in chapter 2, we opened it up, and what we discovered in this book that's a time capsule, in this first century church, there was already dissension and bickering and accusations being made against Paul. And what did we pull out that second night? The family album. Paul said, brothers, he said, we, we treated you like a nursing mother ministry is related, that there's something about God and what he does to us that's like a nursing mother. He also said, we instructed you like a father. And when I was separated from you, I was orphaned. And what became really clear in this book is that those that are Adventist, we treat each other with respect and love in the family of God. Amen? Amen. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 was. That picture album. That's that's where Paul turned to when he came under uh, condemnation was that brothers and sisters don't treat each other this way. Then we looked in chapter 4. What did we pull out in chapter 4? Bandage. In the most intimate relationships, Paul says, therefore, that we're to live our lives to please God. And we saw that Adventist live different than the rest of the world. And when I say Adventist, I hope I mean Seventh-day Adventist. I want that to be true. But Adventist is not just a denominational name. It is a lifestyle that we live. It's the way we look at the world. And that God desperately needs people in this world today who live different than the rest of the world. Remember those bandages? The world is bleeding It needs people who can apply that bandage of grace to these hurting areas of their lives, especially the family. We're now looking at the uh, fifth chapter. In fact, we were looking at chapter four and five, and we pulled one more thing out of that box. What did we pull out? Do you remember? A football. Yeah, not a not a basketball and not a baseball because those are predictable. Throw them down, they come back up to you. But a football? Unpredictable. That's the way life is, isn't it? It's unpredictable. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, I don't think it's a mistake that Paul put these two chapters side by side. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 13 going through five eleven, The state of the dead and the state of the living. And we saw last night that what you believe about the stay of the dead affects how you live. Is that true? And evidently there were a group of people in Paul's day that believed that because they had lived right, that they should be still alive when Jesus comes. They had a plan. And I shared with you that when I work with hospice people, some of the toughest folks that I work with are folks who have eaten right and lived right and done everything right. And then everything goes wrong. Have you ever met that before? I'm so thankful that the word of God speaks to where we live, aren't you? And that the state of the dead does affect the state of the living. It is important how we live our lives. We need to live them to honor and glory God, glorify God. But we need to also know that even when things go wrong, God still has a will for your life. That was chapters 4 and 5. Tonight we're going to pull something else out of this time capsule. And I'd like you to open your Bibles with me tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. We're talking about those who lived in this first century church and believed. Five chapters in First Thessalonians, each one of those five chapters ends in the second coming of Jesus. Regardless of what Paul's talking about, he looks at it through the eyes of the coming of Jesus. The Vasa, that was a Swedish battleship that was built in 1628. It was 227 feet long, not quite the length of a football field. 172 feet high, it had 13,000 feet of sail to it. It's not that it was the biggest ship ever built, there have been others that were bigger it had a crew of 145 sailors that it took to man it. But what gave it a note of notoriety was its armament. This ship was covered in guns in all sides. Not just the broadside, but on every side. It can shoot from any side. In fact, it said that this ship could launch 600 pounds worth of armament from one side. No ship had ever been able to do that before. Sixty-four guns all the way around this ship. And not only its armament, but its ornamentation. That on this ship, they had carved these statues ten feet tall. There, There were statues of animals and wild men and sea creatures and titan warriors. They were painted in vivid colors. Some places overlaid in gold. It, it glistened in the sun. Can you imagine those guns and those paintings? 20 figures of Roman emperors carved onto that ship. It was a frightening piece of warfare. Today, you can see the Vasa. It's estimated about 29 million people a year go to Stockholm to see this ship. Because on August 10, 1628. Two years after it was built, it was a calm day, slight wind. This ship left harbor on its inaugural cruise. It went 390 feet and sank in 150 feet of water. 390 feet. It was there till 1961, and they brought it up and refurbished and and examined it. And you know what they they discovered? That this ship, with all of its guns and and ornamentations, that this ship did not have the proper ballast system underneath it. That it was hop-heavy. Listen to me. It was built for show. The top priority was not battle and service and safety. There were personalities and pride. That it overshadowed its purpose, and it sank, and every one of those builders went to jail. <laughs> built for show, looked beautiful up top, 390 feet, and went under. You see, a a ship built like that will fail. And church members, a church built like that will fail as well. Paul knew that. And what I'm going to pull out of this tonight and set on this table are the building blocks. The building blocks for a healthy church. Paul's concerned. You know what happened in Thessalonica. He's run out of town. Only there a short time. And he's he's thinking about them. He knows the town they live in. Thessalonica is prosperous. Immorality is just part of the culture. He knows what they've come out of and knows what they can be drawn back into. His heart is hurting for this little church, newly built church. And he wants to make sure that it doesn't go under. I really believe that Paul had a fear and a concern. Not because of what God can do, but because... Because of what man can do sometimes. You see, the reason I believe Paul had this concern is not because of what he said, but because of what he didn't say. And remember, we've said that the Bible is a lot like the game Jeopardy. We get the question and from the question, we get the answer and from the answer we deduct the question. And when we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, one thing becomes clear very quickly. There's a problem with leadership in this early church. And Paul must address it. It's one of the last things he does before he closes this book. Must have been important. He wanted to leave it on their minds. And it's not what Paul says. It's what he doesn't say. You see, there's some words Paul could have used... Because he uses them in other places, but he doesn't use it here. He doesn't use those titles here. Paul could use the title Presbyteros. It means elder. He used it in 1 Timothy. He used it in Titus. These were the learned leaders, the sages. That was in his vocabulary. But when he talked about leadership in this church, the words never mentioned. He could have used another term, episkopos. Epi means over, skopos means a sea, and so your English translation says overseer. We, we call them overseers. He uses it in Timothy, he uses it in Titus, doesn't use it here. He could have used another word that he used in other places, dekinos, deacons. Doesn't use it here. What I want you to see in this uh, section that we're going to look at for a few moments is that the building blocks that Paul uses, these building blocks are not titles. Would you look with me in First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 12? Just read with me if you would, beginning in verse 12, it says this, "And now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord. And who admonish you. Do you notice that in this verse, when he talks about leadership, nowhere does he mention a title. I want to suggest to you that in our churches, the people, are the leaders, are not always the people with the titles. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes those names we put in the little books and we publish and even send that list to the conference. That's not always the leaders in the church. Paul does not define leadership by titles. He defines it by character. That leaders are people who lead. John MacArthur, who is a Christian writer about leadership, he has a very uh, simple statement. He said, if you think you're a leader, look over your shoulder. If there's nobody back there... (laughs) huh?" You know, we we have titles. That does not make you a leader. And I think that Paul's concern is this, that he wants this church to be built on the building blocks of Christian leadership. These are leaders, and would you notice this? He said, church, you are to respect and hold them in highest esteem. Do you know in your local church Who the leaders are. Notice the characteristics. Not the titles. Would you notice the first characteristics? Now I ask you brothers to respect those who do what? What is it? Work hard among you. What's the hardest job in your church? Do you know those who work hard among you? Paul says, look around church. Who are those who call themselves Adventists that believe Jesus is coming and they are working hard towards that end? It has nothing to do with title. It has a lot to do with character. Who are those who work hard among you? I want to suggest some of those folks teach in the Sabbath school classes. Would you believe that? Hmm? That some of those folks teach in Sabbath school classes. They're there. You know, when you teach adult at Sabbath school, you look at your lesson Friday night. You know, you've been reading it all week. No, 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 no. You, you've been down to lower grade Sabbath schools with the little birds hanging from the ceilings, right? You walk among these tents. I was in the kindergarten. You wouldn't believe talking about buried treasure. They got a swimming pool with sand in it and treasures buried. Isn't that something? You didn't have that in the adult lesson, did you? Huh? There are people who spend their money because they know the church doesn't have it. They work hard. They've never been in an adult Sabbath school lesson in 20 years. (laughs) They work hard among us. Do we know that? And that's what Paul says. You need to know those who work hard among you. In the church where I attend, being in a university town and it's a retirement town and and there are times when we have quite a few funerals, to be honest with you. And there's a group of ladies in our church that provide a meal. And you all do this in your churches as well. Because families come from out of town. And after the funeral, they provide a meal for the, for the family and the friends. I had one Sabbath where I had three funerals. Three. Those ladies did three meals. I can hardly get them out of the kitchen to introduce them to the folks there. We're not talking about going to Sam's and buying a big thing of lasagna. Handmade stuff that you would serve Sabbath morning for your guests. That's what they're making. I bet half this church that I attend don't even know that these people do that until the crisis hits their lives. People who work hard among you. Who are those? Do you know that's a farming term? That means to break a sweat. That in the body of Christ. There are those who are so committed. There are pathfinder lead. Are you with me? Those folks who have just done everything. To influence those children. And they grow up to remember that. They remember that. Those folks that worked hard among them. Paul says, church, let's start this thing out right. I want you to know who works hard among you. When you go back home, sit down with your board and ask them that question. What's the hardest work in this? There's people that keep your churches looking so nice outside and in that we don't think a thing about it. Who work hard among us. There are Bible workers in our churches. You know, that every evening they're not home relaxing in the easy chair. Many of them are giving Bibles. They are working hard among us. Paul says we need to know who those are. That's the first building block. Are those that put their lives where their mouth is. That leadership is not a title. Leadership is a character trait. That they work hard among you. Would you notice the second quality he has here? This is interesting. He says, respect those who uh, work hard among you and who are over you in the Lord. Do you see that? Now, we get a little nervous with that phrase, over you in the Lord. It sounds a little bit like some type of uh, lordship. No, no, that's not what it is at all. I, I don't really like that translation as much. What it really means stands in front of you. That's what the word literally means. The ones who stand in front of you for the Lord. It's not the folks back pushing. It's the folks up front saying, come on. Follow me. We can do this thing. At Andrews University years ago, they started a youth program and they called it the Giraffe Society. Giraffe Society. And they recruited people who were willing to do what? Stick their neck out. Huh? Huh? Yeah, and there are folks in your church who are willing to do that. Oh, have mercy. I was in one of those meetings. Uh, it was, school was getting ready to start. We had a ch- little church school of seven. I was pastoring in West Virginia, and these kids were just so dear. But, you know, finances were always a struggle. we were always struggling to, to pay this teacher's salary, and we needed $2,000 for the school year to start, and we didn't have it. And there are those saying, we can't do it this year. And there's others saying, we've got to do it this year. And I'm the pastor. I'm just sitting there quietly. I have no idea what we're going to do. Then my elder reached in his pocket and pulled out his checkbook. I thought, all right, here we go. And uh, he did. He wrote a check and he placed it on the table. And here's what he said. You know, we're always talking about how we need to have faith for the church school. You know, we need to have... He said, let me tell you what I just put on the table. I just put this month's mortgage payment on the table. And he said, this month, I'm going to have faith that God will provide for my mortgage. He turned to me and said, Pastor. (laughs) What? (laughs) Pastor. Oh, man. I mean, I'm just out of the... I don't have any money, but I'm paying rent. And I have my checkbook. Let me tell you, we never brought our checkbooks to board meetings again, but I <laughs> I <laughs> I took and I wrote the check for my rent, and I'm thinking, what will I tell Leslie? And and I write that, and I and right around the table, we put that money on the table. And guess what? We had enough money to start the school year. And, oh, And and I know know this sounds like something out of Insight Magazine. Two days later, I get a letter in the mail from the state of Michigan. I had finished seminary, been there in school. And since I was a pastor before I went, I got a letter from them saying there were some deductions that you could have taken that you didn't take. Enclosed is a refund check. Do you want to guess how much was in that envelope? Shame on me, right? Shame on me. I'm telling you, sometimes elders have got to push pastors, right? Got to step out front. These are the folks who take the lead. That's what it means, over you and the Lord. Not loitering it over you. Follow me. You know, Pathfinder leaders, you're the first one down the trail in the morning, you know. You're eating those cobwebs. You know what that's like. First one. That's what he says in this Adventist church. We need some people who will step up and be leaders, not have titles. Leaders are people who lead. But that's not all. Would you notice with me, there's another characteristic here of these leaders. Notice what it says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you in the Lord. See, in the Bible, admonition always has to do with moral instruction. It always centers in the Word of God. We need leaders in our church who believe and read the Bible and believe that it speaks to where people live. We must have those leaders in our church. Now, I know what you say sometimes. Sometimes we think, well, who am I? What in the world could I ever do for the Lord? I found this little thing. Listen to this. When you feel like you have nothing to give the Lord, that you can't be a leader in your church, here's what it said. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abusive. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric and ate bugs. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. What's your problem, huh? (laughs) That's who God calls to be leaders. I still remember listening to a fellow by the name of David Ring who has cerebral palsy. If you've ever heard this man preach, you can hardly understand a word he's saying when he first starts preaching. When I teach homiletics, I require my students to watch this man preach. And by the end of the sermon, he has broken everybody's hearts. Because he comes out finally and says with his gnarled body. He even sings at the end of this thing. And he says, I have cerebral palsy. What's your excuse? Then he has this famous quote. God has not called us to whine but to shine. Huh? Amen? God has called us as leaders not to whine but to shine. You know, I have students that come to me and they say, Pastor... How can I tell if I'm called to the ministry? And I just want to share with you real quick. I think sometimes we've not understood what Paul means by ministry. And it's crucial in our churches that we understand that. Especially in a church that's living just before Jesus comes. In the Adventist church. I think the first call to ministry, and there's probably several calls you can find in the Bible, that first call is the call to be a Christian. A student asked me, how can I tell if I'm called to ministry? I always ask them, are you a Christian? What do you mean am I No, I'm asking Are you a Christian? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is He supreme in your life? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that what? Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. first call in ministry is the call to be a Christian. And anybody that accepts that call is in the ministry. Do you know that? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you know verse 17, where it says, it talks about that, uh, any man being Christ, he's what? New creature? Old things passed away, behold what? All things become as new. You know what verse 20 says? And we have been given this ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors. Do you realize that everyone that's called and accepted Christ as their Savior, is called to live for Jesus where they live. To be an ambassador. If that's true, every person in this room that claims to be a Christian is also a minister. Do you believe that? Yes. And that God has called you to live where you live. You see, your occupation is how you make your living. Your vocation is what makes your life worth living. Your vocation is how you live for Jesus where you live. And that's what gets exciting. When you begin to find in your congregation, in your Thessalonica, where God has placed you, what can you do there for the kingdom's sake? What has called you, what has God called you to do? I'm looking in this room at maybe 200 ministers tonight. People who have accepted Christ as their Savior, and God has called you now to be an ambassador. I was sharing this with a group once, and this gentleman came up and he said, you know, he said, I worked for the electric company for for 30 years. But he said, I just love kids. I always wanted to work with kids. And he told me, he said, "Uh, when I retired from the electric company, uh, I went down and uh, I I signed up to drive a school bus. He said, I always wanted to work with kids. And so uh, he said that uh, one thing that he always wanted to do is that he would go to the first stop on the route about a half an hour early. Because in the winter it would be a little cold and the summer would be hot. You'd like to get there a half an hour early and sort of get the air conditioning running or get the heater going and clean things and make sure it's nice before the kids get on. And he so said, one day he's sitting there and he's getting everything ready, getting ready for his run. And this lady knocks on the door. He opens his school bus and the lady says, uh, you always pick my daughter up on your route. We're the last one. And by the time you get there, it's hard for me to get to work. She said, would you mind? If, uh, if I brought my daughter up here, uh, then I can get to work in plenty of time and put her on the bus here. And he said, well, I, I guess I don't mind. And so the next day, not only did she come, but she brought a little friend. And they're on the bus, and the fellow didn't know what to do. And finally, before he started, he said to these little girls, he said, do you all like stories? I said, yeah. And so the next day, when the bus was there, and these two little girls got on, he introduced them to his Uncle Arthur. Huh? little tape stories, you know, that he would play on his bus for that half an hour period. He said it was amazing. All kinds of kids started coming to that stop, (laughs) getting on the bus, wanting to hear. He said the one that was really the getter, he said, one day there's this knock at the door of the bus. He opens it. It's that lady, the first lady. She's there all in curlers, got on her house coach. She said, it's my day off, but she says, I still got to bring her here. I'm here to tell you something, church, that God has called us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians to live where we live for Him. Do you believe that? That He has placed us where we are. And, And I believe that God puts these gifts in the church for the building up. In fact, I'm going to show that to you. Look with me in Ephesians, just real quick. We'll finish up here in just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 4. This is a verse that you're familiar with in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Ephesians verse 11 says this. And it is he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. In verse 12, to do what? To prepare God's people for works of service. Do you see that word prepare? Keep your finger right there and go back with me to Mark 119. Go back to Mark 119, just for a moment. Mark 119. Keep your finger there, but go back with me to Mark 119. I want you to notice this. This is Jesus by the sea making a call, and look in verse 19. And when he had gone a little farther, Mark 119, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat. What are they doing? fixing, mending, preparing. Guess what? Exact same word as Ephesians 4.11. What is the purpose of the gifts God places within the church? To mend the nets for service. To prepare. It's the exact same word. That God has called us in the body of Christ to help each other. Prepare our nets for service to live for Jesus where we live. You ever had someone who was a real leader in your life that made a difference? I have, and I didn't even know it at a time. I was talking, we brought uh, Jane up tonight, and uh, we were talking about Mount Vernon. I went, uh, her, her brother was there as a senior when I was a freshman, John, and I told some of you, I knew nothing about Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, I got to Mount Vernon, and they talked about Ellen White. I thought she lived in the community. I had no idea. And you all relate to this. They sent me over to the cafeteria, to the bakery, to get my first job. And that's where I met this lady, Wava White. Yeah, and I thought to myself, that's her. That's Mrs. White. They're always talking about food. She works over there in the cafeteria. I had no idea who this person was. I came from West Virginia, um, Mother and stepfather, and they were always separating and going their ways because of drinking and get to drinking and fists start flying, and my mom took a lot of abuse. Some of us kids had learned to get under the beds and things, and my mother had left him. And I'd gone to live with my grandparents, and they knew somebody that was a Seventh-day Adventist. And my grandparents encouraged me to go to a seventh they were not Seventh Adventist. ...to go to a Seventh-day Adventist Academy. They wanted to get me out of that home. Being the oldest one, I was the recipient of some of these fists flying. And I remember going to Mount Vernon, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'd lived on a farm in West Virginia. I knew what work was. And got up there, and here were all these guys my age and girls. I mean, it was just the neatest thing I'd ever experienced in my life. I had one of those haircuts. Uh, my dad just always shut, Stepfather cut her hair. Just put that razor right on your head. You remember those? That burr haircut? Yeah, your brother and a fellow named Paul Saint Villiers gave me a nickname my freshman year. They they called me Peach because I had red hair and they cut it. it just looked like peach fuzz, you know. But here I was, this little freshman, tall, skinny, you know, and uh, didn't know a soul. And her brother and some others there put me on their teams in sports. And I started meeting people. I, I didn't know how to act. I, I knew nothing about Adventists. And the first month came for home leave. And I went back to West Virginia to my grandparents. That's where I was staying. And then I found out that my mother had gone back to my stepfather. You know how that is in those ab- abusive relationships. People just keep going going back. And, and I am at my grandparents and I've got a long weekend. And I'm starting to get these phone calls. My stepfather, you need to come home and I, man i 've been to heaven, and i 'm going back to hell i i, I didn 't know what to do i 'm just a little kid though I could never stand up against him. He was a huge man'd been a marine in the second world war, and i 'm just this little kid, but oh I, I just wanted to go back to that academy. And I remember at West Virginia at that time, they had thirteen kids at Mount Vernon Academy. They had to do three carpools to get everybody up there. And I remember we met at one place and my grandparents took me there, and the cars were there, the parents said we're going to take all of us back. And I'm I'm sitting in my grandparents' car and up pulls my stepfather. And I, I don't know. I'm sitting in the back seat and I don't know what to do. I I don't want to get in that man's car. And uh, I'm sitting there. And there's a family in West Virginia by the name of the Hazes. They had a bunch of kids my age. Bob Hayes was just the most likable fellow. He was about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I'm sitting there in that car with my head down, and I don't know what is going is I'm a 13-year-old kid. And all of a sudden, the car door opens. And when it opens, Bob Hayes is standing there. And he takes me by the hand, and he says, Son, it's time to go to school. And by the hand, he led me over and put me in his car. That's a leader. I couldn't stand up against this man. He could. Put me in that car. Never saw my stepfather again. How different my life would have been if I would have stopped after one month in academy. I did a a camp meeting down in Florida. Looked out in the audience and there sat Wanda on the front row. Wanda Hayes, Bob's wife just a, a couple years ago. It just, it just did something I could hardly preach. <laughs> to think that this leader in the church, humble man, we construction that day. He was the angel Gabriel to me. He, he stood for me. He was a leader that did what was right. And it changed my life. I probably would not be married to this beautiful woman today <laughs> or have met these great friends if it hadn't been for that person who stood for me. I want to tell you something, church family. Where you live and where you go to church. Hansons, come on up here. I want us to know that we can never give up. Are you with me? Are there any Adventists here today? And people who want to serve Jesus in their churches. And they want to do it not because they have a title. But because they have a calling. That they believe Jesus is coming soon. And they're looking for those little scrawny kids that nobody else will stand up for. That somebody, you never know the life you will change when you're willing to be a leader in the Adventist church. Let's never give up. Sing for us if you were to. My faith in God keeps growing stronger. For Jesus is coming someday. Never give up, Jesus is coming. It's the darkest, just Never give up. Jesus is coming. Never give up. Keep holding on. Let's do it. Let's do it. Please please stand. Let's sing that. Tonight, we've taken some time to pray up here. I would like to ask if there are some pastors here, and Larry, I'm including you in all this, if you all would just come up and join me up here. Uh, some pastors here tonight, wherever you are, if you come and join me, because I'm going to ask if there's some folks here tonight that just, you just need to pray for God to give you a strength to be a leader in your church, that Jesus is coming soon. There may be some things you may have to stand up for. There may be some scrawny little kids that you need to to, to be that person who's willing to stand before. I'm going to ask, thank you for coming down, gentlemen. we will just spread right across the front here. And as we finish here, in fact, we're going to sing that one more time. If some of you need to go tonight, I understand that. Move right on out of the tent and where you need to go. But there's some of you tonight that want to pray. Just ask God to give us strength to be the leaders he's called to be in this Adventist church before he comes. Would you just come up front? And you know these folks. In fact, is this pastor underseer here? How you doing, good, brother? You. Good to see you, man. It's been a while. Come up and pray with these folks up here. I'll be down here as well. Let's just put it in God's hands that God gives us the strength to be the people He wants us to be before Jesus comes. Do you believe that? Let's sing one more time and we'll pray and then we'll have folks come. Just a chorus. Just of course. Never give up Jesus' coming it's the darkest just before dawn never give up Jesus is coming never give up keep holding on Father in heaven thank you so much this evening for Jesus Christ who never gave up on any of us that we stand here today because of his amazing grace. We've heard testimonies earlier tonight and each one of us has that testimony. We are sons and daughters of God because of his blood that covers us. But Lord, you have called us to live for you where we live in our churches and I thank you for the churches represented here and for the courageous people who are the leaders many of them unnoticed but you see and Father it may be that there's somebody here tonight that realizes I want to be a part of this movement I want to be a part of what God has planned in these churches so Heavenly Father I pray tonight as I finish this prayer would your Holy Spirit continue to rule those hearts that they come up and that we talk with you with them about how God's leading in their lives thank you this evening for the Sabbath and this encampment and the joy we have to worship together In Jesus' name, amen. Good night and thank you for being here. If you would like to pray, come, join us this evening. And let's spend some time with you in prayer too.